You are listening to the Progress Your Health Podcast, episode 54. Welcome to the Progress Your Health Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Robert Mackey and Dr. Valerie Davidson, a husband and wife team who specialize in bioidentical hormone replacement therapy and functional medicine. They're here to help you lose weight, balance hormones, and age gracefully. It's their mission to motivate, educate, and empower you to take your health to the next level. And now your hosts, hormone experts, Dr. Mackey and Dr. Davidson. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Progression Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Mackey. And I'm Dr. Davidson. Uh, so on this episode, we're going to dive in uh, with another reader question. This one is regarding PCOS. Uh, complicated, lots of things going on. Uh, Dr. Davis, would you like to read the question? Absolutely. So this question is from Nikki. Hi, I was prescribed 200 milligrams of Prometrium a couple of weeks ago to take on day 20 to 30 of my 32-day cycle. I ovulate around day 16. Day 20 was the night before our vacation, and after reading some potential side effects, I decided to wait until this next cycle to take the Prometrium for the 10 days. They think I have PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome, so I'm hoping it will make it easier to lose weight. My main concern is the potential side effects of the pills. Do you think using the cream is better, less side effects than taking two pills at night? I also have a few drinks on the weekend, and I didn't know how that would interact with the pills as well. I have about two weeks to decide what to do, so I'm looking for some advice. Also, history is I have many symptoms of low progesterone, anxiety, thinning hair, inability to lose weight no matter what I do, and after having a miscarriage at week 12 last year, I had to take oral progesterone to stop the bleeding. Uh, Yeah, so uh, some of those are definitely... uh you know, PCOS symptoms. Uh, there's a few things there that kind of make us, at least makes me question whether she actually has officially PCOS uh, based on a couple of things that she said. Um, but she's asking specifically about the permetrium, a 200 milligram capsule or 200 milligram capsules at night before bed. Uh, Dr. Davidson, what are your thoughts about that? Well, like Dr. Mackey had mentioned, you know, polycystic ovarian syndrome has a lot of symptoms to it. And we've always thought that you have more, that people can be more on the spectrum of PCOS as opposed to having, you know, all the main symptoms. And a lot of doctors seem to think either you have it or you don't. And that's not necessarily the case. And definitely in Nikki's case, that's she's not. I wouldn't put her as a full PCOS patient, but she does have some of those symptoms. But in particular, like Dr. Mackey was talking about with the Prometrium, is 200 milligrams Prometrium might be a little bit high for her to take. And Prometrium itself, we prescribe Prometrium here and there, but Prometrium is bioidentical progesterone, but there is a lot of excipients, binders, and fillers that people can be allergic to. So not just the fillers, but there's also, um, it's also made with peanuts or with peanut oil. So people with a peanut oil allergy can have an issue with that as well. Right, right. And uh, the, probably the, the big distinction besides the binders, fillers, and the peanut oil is that it is an instant release progesterone. Uh, now, it is better than, let's say, some forms of birth control and some of the other things because it's not a progestin. Progestin is not progesterone. A lot of doctors will confuse people and, and basically 
make people think or tell them that they're taking progesterone, but really when it's actually a progestin, at least Prometrium is not a progestin. That's that's the good part. Uh, now, why why we don't know how old Nikki is. We're assuming she's probably somewhere between the ages of 25 and 35. You know, as she said, she just uh, unfortunately uh, was able to conceive and then had a miscarriage. That's um, sad to say. Uh, but we're making an assumption there, even though she didn't tell us how old she was. Uh, starting off on 200 milligrams, at least in my mind anyway, seems like it's you know kind of a lot to start. Why not start at 100 and then go up from there? Exactly. And like Dr. Mackey had mentioned about the prometrium, you know, being an instant release means it goes right into your bloodstream as soon as you take it. And of course, you'd want to take any kind of progesterone prometrium capsule at night because it makes you tired. So if you're doing an instant release, that's going to make you maybe a little bit tired so that, of course, then you can go to sleep. But um, as Nikki was saying, you know, having some alcohol, that's fine. You can take alcohol and still take progesterone. There's not going to be any negative side effects other than the instant release progesterone can make you a little tired initially, you know, actually probably pretty drowsy right away. And then you throw on a little bit of alcohol or some drinks and that's that makes you drowsy too. So it might make her um, a little extra drowsy. So she just wants to be careful with that. Yeah, right. And the sleep benefit only really comes from taking the oral progesterone. And that's something that we do all the time on purpose, right? We give the oral progesterone specifically for that sleep benefit. Um, but that's why you take it at night as opposed to first thing in the morning. Because if you're going to work or school, it might make it a little tough to, you know, to be productive because you're falling asleep at your desk. Uh, so like I said, why the 200 milligrams? It seems like a lot to start out, especially with the fact that it's instant release. Uh, you know, we would have, you and I know for sure would have started at a hundred, maybe even depending on the woman, maybe even started at 50 and then work our way up from there. Some women, you know, we might even actually cycle the progesterone where you give them 50 for half the month, you take a hundred half the month, or maybe that 75 and 150 or a hundred and 200. So there's a lots of different, uh, dosing possibilities there. Now, what do you think about the, uh, um, she, uh, she specifically, she's asking about side effects, which we kind of covered. Not really a lot that she has to really worry about, certainly with some alcohol. They would probably be minimized a little bit if she took the 100 first and see how she tolerates, establishing tolerance first and then going up from there. But what do you think about the difference between the pill versus the progesterone cream? Well, like you had mentioned, taking the capsule or pill is going to help you sleep better taking that progesterone. I don't find the cream helps as much for being able to fall asleep and stay asleep. And then also with the progesterone, in Nikki's case, it kind of depends on what the individual goals are. But I definitely like the capsules over the cream when you're looking at helping you fall asleep and stay asleep. Uh, the capsule seems to help with the mood a little bit better. In Nikki's case of looking at possible PCOS, doing a progesterone capsule can help balance those androgens or the elevated um, testosterone and DHEA a little bit better that I find for the mood, for that irritability, um, that tolerance, that patience. And then progesterone, when you're Putting that in the system as a capsule, it does have to go through the digestion, but I haven't. But it doesn't have any effect on the liver. It's not going to have anything negative in terms of taking it orally. It just kind of depends on the goals. But I do think in Nikki's case, taking a capsule over a cream would be more of a benefit for her. Yeah, we, uh, you know, together we don't usually prescribe progesterone cream. We're not really. We do it sometimes. You know, sometimes women they just they just 
inevitably they tolerate it better. And we've talked about that in some other um, blog posts and some other podcasts uh, that in some situations, the progesterone cream does not work. If you're taking estrogen and you have a uterus, you know, that might not really be the best idea um, just to protect the uterine lining. Now, we also have talked about uh, rhythmic dosing. Rhythmic dosing, you can use a cream-based progesterone. Uh, it's similar to this where you're only using it for half the month. Because uh, if you look at the female cycle, if you mapped out the way the hormones fluctuate over the course of, let's say, 28 or in this case, 32 days, which that fluctuation, by the way, 28 to 32, that fluctuation is completely normal. Every woman is going to have their own cycle it might vary from month to month a little bit. It's not meant to be the same every single month. That's not, it doesn't have to be that way. Some women, they could set their clock to it, right? It's very regular, shows up the same time all the time. But that is honestly, that's probably pretty, for the most part, pretty uncommon. Um, having some variability there is usually, um, you know, is normal and probably the more common situation. Uh, so Dr. Davidson, uh, based on that, what, what, do you, what do you think about that? What, do you, what, are, your, what are your thoughts? Well, I think in Nikki's case, and I, I certainly appreciate her writing us a question, in her case in particular, now she didn't divulge any of this information, but being that she you know, unfortunately had that miscarriage, she might be looking to get pregnant again. And so in that case, I can understand why her doctor would want her to take that prometrium or that progesterone for just part of the month. And yes, having a 32-day cycle is totally normal. I mean, some women have 23-day cycles. Some women have 25-day cycles. Everybody is different. Mine is, I guess for transparency, mine is a 25-day cycle. Everybody's different. But in Nikki's case, if she wants to get pregnant, she probably doesn't want to take progesterone all month long. Now, don't take this as hard and fast, but taking progesterone all month long can decrease your ability to ovulate. Now, don't ever use it as a form of birth control because that's not that's not good. But if she's trying to, you know, have a baby or get pregnant, then yeah, I can understand taking it from day 20 to her next period or day 20 to day, you know, to day 30. But what's also interesting that we wanted to kind of go into is Nikki actually has a cycle. She has a period. She has a regular period. Typically in classic PCOS, most women will miss periods. They won't have a period for three months, for six months. They don't know when they're going to get a period. So it's interesting. She has some of the symptoms of PCOS, but not all the classic symptoms. So she has the trouble losing weight. She has a lot of symptoms of the low progesterone, but she has gotten pregnant in the past. Usually with classic PCOS, there's infertility because they're creating, as the name, polycystic ovarian syndrome, multiple cysts on the ovaries instead of actual ovulation. So she is ovulating. So she does have some of those symptoms of PCOS, like also like the thinning hair, but she doesn't have a lot of the, um, you know, the classic symptoms. So I would put her on the spectrum. Yeah. So those two things right off the bat, she, she's having a regular, you know, as you say, 32 day cycle and she's ovulating. We don't know necessarily how she's tracking the ovulation, whether it's an at-home kid or not. Uh, so those two things right off the bat says that the level of severity of her PCOS, you know, if we're talking from low severity to moderate severity to high severity, she's somewhere between low to moderate severity on that, you know, on that PCOS spectrum. Because if she did have full-blown PCOS, she wouldn't have a period at all. Or if she did, she'd be skipping. She'd have either a really long period to be like, 
36, 37, 40 days. Maybe she'd skip one. She'd have a period every three to six months um, as opposed to having the regularity that she's having. And more than likely, she wouldn't be ovulating. And then not to mention some of the physical characteristics, acne, um, what they call hirsutism. That's basically hair growth uh, in places women obviously don't want to grow hair on the upper lip, on the chin, around the nipple area, around the, uh, and then of course on the belly button, below, uh, on the abdomen below the belly button. You know, those are areas where um, men typically grow hair and women do not. That's driven by those higher level of androgens. And from a, you know, from a diagnosis perspective, if they've had the ultrasound, right? So we've talked about before the string of pearls on the ultrasound. It doesn't have to be the string of pearls, but if there's multiple cysts, that's one diagnostic criteria. And then on lab work, you're going to uh, look for either an elevated DHEA sulfate and or an elevated testosterone. Sometimes they don't do the DHEA, they just do the testosterone. And you might also see uh, hyperinsulinemia. We do insulins all the time specifically for this reason. And you might also see elevated triglyceride levels. Those are all kind of, you know, or even high cholesterol, even blood pressure problems in a woman that is in her 20s or 30s, then you know they're kind of on that, you know, they're definitely on that PCOS spectrum. And then, you know, back to Nikki a little bit, she's talking about having trouble losing weight. That is probably a really classic symptom of anybody that has, you know, PCOS or even, you know, sort of shades or similarities to having polycystic ovarian syndrome is they gain weight really easy and they have a tremendously terrible time trying to lose it. I mean, they do everything. So one one of the things is certainly you know, balancing out that progesterone would probably help Nikki plateau so she's not continuously gaining weight because it's scary. I have women that come in, yeah, they're kind of similar to Nikki. They keep gaining weight every month and then they're terrified that, you know, gosh, I'm, you know, what am I going to be in a couple of years if I can't, you know, if I keep gaining weight no matter what I do? So the progesterone definitely would probably plateau and keep her from gaining weight, but it doesn't always help them. It doesn't, I mean, the pounds aren't going to shed off. As soon as she starts taking progesterone, all of a sudden, you know, she's not going to lose two dress sizes. It just, you know, it's not magic that way. We really want to look at it as a multifactorial process of, sure, balancing those hormones, reducing those androgens, but looking at her lifestyle and possibly some supplementation so we can hit it from every angle that we can. Yeah, right. And, you know, there's a, a couple things there. So uh, from a diet lifestyle perspective, you know, lifestyle, the, the goal is to minimize stress. Okay? So sleep quality has to be good. We talk to women all the time, you know, that are trying to exercise the weight off, right? So they're going to spin class, they're doing this, they're doing that, they're doing lots of exercise to try to lose that weight. And in cases like this and, and a few other ones, all of that extra effort they're putting forth to try to get those pounds up actually you know, kind of creates exactly what they're trying to fix. So it just makes the situation worse. They're raising cortisol too much uh, or too frequently. And that is, uh, you know, in some ways, just perpetuating this little bit of hormonal vicious cycle. On the surface, PCOS manifests as a female hormone problem. Problems with the cycle, uh, you know, uh, problems with ovulation, problems with infertility. But when you really boil it down, it becomes a insulin cortisol issue that then you know kind of manipulates those female hormones in not so such a great way. Uh, so from a diet and lifestyle perspective, the goal there is to improve insulin sensitivity. You take away that major uh, hormonal influence of the insulin. Now the androgens will start to go down over time, and now that female cycle will start to go back into balance, and then hopefully some of those symptoms. In her case, like you, you know, like we talked about, taking the Prometrium days twenty to thirty, 
you know, she's probably trying to get pregnant. Okay? And PCOS is the number one reason for infertility. So women that are going through, uh, you know, that are going through fertility treatments or have been down that road and have been trying and trying and trying, uh, we think that the PCOS needs to be taken care of first or addressed, and then it makes the the likelihood for conception so much easier. And, you know, just to, I definitely want to talk a little bit more about that insulin because that's huge, you know, insulin, as we've always talked about, is the bull in the china shop. You know, everybody's trying to tiptoe around it when really, you know, we've got to focus on insulin. But one other aspect that has an influence on cortisol and insulin, of course, you know, lifestyle, but is checking the thyroid. And I'm sure Nikki has had her thyroid checked before multiple times by her primary care physician or endocrinologist or her gynecologist. But as we've always talked about is, a lot of people will have subclinical low thyroid levels, like their T3 is low. We've done podcasts and articles on, you know, symptoms of low T3 and how that manifests. So definitely looking at Nikki's um, thyroid function, plus checking her for Hashimoto's. It's really interesting. I don't know if there's a bunch of peer-reviewed whatever research, but anecdotally, just from being in practice for many years, is we definitely see a connection between people that, women that have polycystic ovarian syndrome are part of some of those symptoms, that collection. They seem to, Hashimoto seems to go right in line with that. There's like a correlation between the two. So definitely looking at that thyroid function and then ruling out or ruling in Hashimoto's. Yeah, right. And optimizing, not treating hypothyroid specifically, but optimizing thyroid function, which is not necessarily the goal of the endocrinologist or the, you know, the, or the gynecologist or the internal medicine doctor, but really trying to optimize those numbers. That's where, and especially if her goal is fertility, that, you know, we've seen that, you know, time and time again, and how, how sometimes easy it can be when you focus on some of those, you know, those simple things and let mother nature kind of take its course. Uh, the thyroid has a, you know, so we've talked about in the past, we've talked about the metabolic hormones, insulin, cortisol, thyroid, that has a major influence on those secondary hormones. Um, in this case, the female hormones, right? It has a huge influence on estrogen, a huge influence on uh, progesterone, huge influence on DHA, testosterone, but not so much the other way around. Usually those other, those secondary hormones, the sex hormones don't have as much influence on the other ones. So thyroid is a very kind of indirect, or thyroid optimization sometimes is a very indirect sort of way to influence. I mean, really it's a direct sort of way, but the way that it's thought about, it's an indirect sort of way to have an impact on the female hormones, even though we kind of consider that to be like a, an, an obvious first step. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, the thyroid and the adrenals, you know, hence, you know, talking about that cortisol is always upstream from the female hormones. So you can try to chase your tail by trying to balance these female hormones when really you have to go upstream and work on that thyroid and that cortisol slash adrenals to really have an effect on those female hormones. And like I'd mentioned about Hashimoto's and I, and many of you have been listening to our podcast for a, a long time. So you know what that is, but those of you that might be new or you're not certain what Hashimoto's is, is Hashimoto's is basically an autoimmune condition where the immune system is attacking the thyroid. For whatever reason, there's lots of reasons out there that we don't. We could go on for hours, but basically your immune system is creating these antibodies and attacking your thyroid, and that's Hashimoto's disease. And then we had also talked about the thyroid is checking those levels. So just not that we want to go on for hours and hours because we have other podcasts that you can listen to about this and read about, but 
Don't ever base someone's thyroid level on just a simple TSH or thyroid-stimulating hormone, a signal from the brain. We always want to delve into, especially in Nikki's case, is what is her free T4 and what is her free T3. And, you know, just like Dr. Mackey had mentioned, of course there's medications to work on with thyroid, but there's so much more to it than that. If somebody has a a low level, you know, a low level of free T3, instead of just giving a medication, there's lots of lifestyle aspects we can do to work on raising that up, lots of supplementation we can do to work on raising up that thyroid function. And then there it'll go downstream to help with that estrogen and that progesterone and those female reproductive hormones. Yeah, right. I mean, we we do test everyone um, when we're looking at, when we're assessing somebody and we're managing them over time. We do pay attention to their TSH. It's not that that's a bad test, but that, and it shouldn't be run. It should absolutely be run, but it's your decision whether someone has a good functioning or a well-functioning thyroid or not should not be based just on that one number. And for whatever reason, I still don't know why this is, but you and I run into it all the time. And we've been getting a lot of questions. One of our number one um, trafficked, um, uh, actually it's a podcast we did. Do you have low free T3? That's actually, we get more traffic to that podcast than we do anything else on our website because this is an aspect that conventionally in uh, endocrinology, they don't even acknowledge that. They might sometimes do a total T3. They might look at uh, you know, they might look at that. If they do, they might prescribe cytomel. But we think, especially in a case like this, if pregnancy or fertility is part of the issue, that free T3, I don't know of any research, and I, we, I should definitely look this up as I'm thinking about this as we're talking. I bet you there is a correlation between free T3 levels and fertility level, right? As you optimize that free T3, their likelihood, their fertility increases at the same time because you're using that main hormone to have an impact on the on female hormone status. Now, granted, from a gynecology perspective, they know the connection. There's a definite connection between fertility and and thyroid function, right? That's kind of an obvious thing, but I bet you it's you know a little bit deeper than that, kind of on that free T3 level. As far as what does that mean? Is there a number you're shooting for? Not necessarily, but we kind of have our targets of what we're trying to accomplish, whether that's with medication or without. We do not want that free T3 to be low normal. We want it to be um, you know, middle of the road or high normal, because um, that's one usually where the patient feels good. Some of their their symptoms start to you know go away, and if uh, fertility or uh, conception is the goal, their likelihood of that. I don't know how many times you and I have gotten six nine months into the process. You know, we put them on a you know a, on a regimen, and you know get a phone call. Yep, so and so's pregnant. You know, that's great. It's always really good news. And by you know what we did to accomplish that. Um, you know, and the lifestyle things that they changed really wasn't all that, really wasn't all that, uh, all that challenging or all that complicated. It was pretty simple stuff most of the time. Oh, absolutely. Especially to get somebody feeling better, you know, on, on, on a side note, uh, T3 or free T3 is the active pretty much the active form of thyroid, that that by optimizing your free T3 levels, you can not only work on the female reproductive hormones, but it also helps speed up that metabolism. So partly with Nikki, it could be that her free T3 levels are low, and that's really keeping her her metabolism low. Because as I'd mentioned, women with PCOS tend to have very slow metabolisms, a lot of trouble losing weight. In part, I think there's a low T free T3 aspect to it. But then like we had mentioned, about the insulin, about having insulin resistance or just having higher levels of insulin. So one thing that 
you know, we can't, can't stress enough on somebody that has PCOS or, you know, possible PCOS or a lot of the symptoms that manifest with PCOS is really dietary wise, they need to work on eating foods that keep their insulin down. I can't tell you how many women that are, and I, hey, being a vegan is awesome. There's lots of great philosophy and to that. I love it. But a lot of times, you know, being a vegan or a vegetarian, they end up being way too carb-based, way too high glycemically carb-based. So then it's causing their insulin to go even higher than it was to begin with. Yeah, right. And that is the, like you said, the bull in the china shop. That's the hormone that drives all of the dysfunction downstream because that's one of those major hormones that is so easily manipulated by the 21st century lifestyle, that and cortisol. So the goal is to improve insulin sensitivity and keeping stress as low as possible. Possible because they both kind of, that insulin cortisol relationship, they kind of feed off each other. And that's why no matter what a woman does, and sometimes what she does do actually makes it worse. Like we were talking about earlier about the diet and uh, exercise piece. Um, that's why taking taking a little bit of a step back and making sure the strategy that you're employing is actually the right strategy because sometimes it can be really it can be really kind of counterintuitive to what you should be doing and what we're told to be doing as opposed to what actually really works it's you know sometimes a little bit different than that people are think they're doing one thing that's actually helping them but in some ways it actually might be hurting the situation overall yeah and there's you know granted doing some blood tests it would be interesting with Nikki to like I said do a full thyroid function panel on her and possibly adding in a little bit with um you know doing a fasting insulin to see how where her insulin is levels are at a lot of doctors will do your your fasting glucose you know everybody gets a fasting glucose or blood sugar checked but they rarely check a fasting insulin and that gives us a little bit more information on you know what we could do with Nikki or other people that are having similar issues as Nikki in terms of just working on lifestyle and trying to reduce their insulin levels. Another thing that is becoming a trend, which I don't really like as much, is there a lot of doctors are relying a little bit too much on a hemoglobin A1C number. Um, that's becoming the new diagnostic criteria, and that is that number has used to be reserved strictly for diabetics. Um, that once you were diabetic, that number would you know basically it's it's showing you the damage to your a certain type of red blood cell uh, that are very uh, immature and haven't quite fully developed, so they're very sensitive to literally this what they call glycation, which is you know a process that happens when the blood sugar is too high for too long. But if someone's not a non-diabetic, you don't really get any really uh, reliable or accurate information. And for whatever reason, just like the free T3s are never done, insulin levels are never done. Um, doctors will never test that for whatever reason. Um, that's why sometimes you have to look at the DHA, the testosterone. Any reproductive age woman, we always look at a DHA and testosterone so we can rule this out, right? Not to mention, like I said earlier, we're looking at triglyceride levels, maybe a, a highly sensitive CRP. That's where you can get some kind of insight to see if this insulin resistance Resistant process is kind of in motion. And I have to admit, I do I do love running hemoglobin A1Cs. I, I like them, but you're right. You don't want to hang your hat on them at all. You'd want to have that as one diagnostic criteria in a whole big puzzle that you're trying to put together. So I, I definitely think the fasting insulin is, is really good to have a look at. Granted, the reference ranges on labs are huge for a fasting insulin. It's like, um, I think it's like four or two and a half up to 19.6 for Quest that a lot of times people fall in range on that. And they say, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, but are you really fine? You want that insulin ideally definitely under 
under nine. And honestly, I like to see it under five. Yeah. And to be honest, that doesn't happen very often. You know, usually uh, if, uh, situations like this, it'll be in the double digits. It'll be 10 plus. Uh, it used to be the reference range for insulin used to go up to 27. And now they reduced it down to 19.6, like I said, for Quest. I think LabCorp is pretty close to that. But when you get that normal number, when it is in the single digits, that's where it gets very confusing. Let's say, um, Nikki, we did a fasting insulin on her and her insulin level comes back at six and a half or seven, right? On paper, it looks pretty good, but she has some of the other, you know, and let's say her testosterone is high or DHA is high. She has other, some of those other things, but now we can kind of check off the insulin thing, but really can you? What a fasting insulin, and doctors have been trained for 70 years to do some of these blood work, uh, some of these tests to do them fasting. Uh, and you and I both believe that there's some, you know, maybe more so I do than you, but there's some situations where not doing them fasting is actually a better idea. So you can see the response, uh, what they call postprandial. So after a meal, um, because you want to see the, the rise to those, to those parameters, maybe not so much, uh, cholesterol, which is also done in fasting, but certainly blood sugar and insulin doing that. Let's say, for example, you sent, you know, you, you made a, an event out of it. You go out for breakfast, you have a nice pan, literally a pancake breakfast, which, you know, might be a nap waiting to happen afterwards. And then you go to the lab like an hour or two after that to see, to see in some ways, how bad are those numbers? How high does that insulin go? That is really more indicative to really see the surge of insulin as opposed to doing it fasting where that number might be somewhat, you know, moderately normal. Like if it's seven, eight or nine, it's kind of on that cusp of being a problem, but not necessarily straightforward enough to say, okay, this is a major issue. But now she went, if that person went in after a meal and it's, you know, 87 or 120, now you know that, you know, based on the glycemic load of that meal, her insulin is skyrocketing. That's what's creating all the problems. And that's the part that is never done. Now for the pregnant women that have been out there, they're women that have had babies, right? You go into the lab and you do the four-hour, what they call a glucose tolerance test, right? They do that for every pregnant woman in the country, but they never test your insulin. They test your glucose before and after. You drink the sugary stuff, but they never test your insulin. That's the missing link. They need to test your... And why, why don't they do that? Why don't they test your blood sugar and test your insulin exactly at the same time? I have no good answer for that. Now, we don't send people in for a glucose tolerance test because you have to be at the lab for like four hours. Like it's a huge inconvenience where looking at some of these other things, you can get a good sense of where they are because who wants to go to the lab for four hours, right? And sometimes going through that process, I know you've had people that the same thing, they drink that sugary stuff and it really wipes them out. They have a headache, they're nauseous, they can barely function after that. You know, that's a that would be a negative test. Our body is not handling that huge amount of glucose they give you. Um, that would tell you all you need to know. So, you know, in the case of Nikki or those of you listening, you might be saying, well, what do I do? Or I want more information on this. And granted, like I said, we could go on for another hour if we wanted to on ways to reduce down insulin. You know, what, what is insulin? What is cortisol? What are all these metabolic hormones, you know, about the reproductive hormones? One thing that we do have is we have our keto carb cycling program. Um, we call it the KCCP. It, it definitely has a little bit more information on there about, you know, what is insulin, what is cortisol, what are some of the other hormones, you know, like leptin and relin and all that. And it has a little bit of information on ways that you can, just in your life, this moment, right now, be able to reduce down your insulin levels to be able to help with weight loss. I think that would probably be like the number one thing that Nikki could do is work on basically reducing down foods that 
that stimulate insulin. So you basically bring down her insulin, bring down her cortisol, and that would help with her metabolism. And it probably would also help with some of those PCOS and female reproductive um, hormones. Yeah, right. And now keto car- KCCP stands for keto carb cycling. Ketogenic diets are really popular right now. Some women with PCOS do really well on ketogenic diets, but there's some mistakes sometimes that are made when they employ the ketogenic diet. We don't necessarily believe that a woman of any, of any sort, or a male or a man for that matter, should be on a ketogenic diet for long periods of time because that's where some of the, you know, even the thyroid function, you know, thyroid function starts to go down and some other things happen because when you're taking out an entire macronutrient, uh, but then also part of that KCCP is intermittent fasting. And intermittent fasting is also, you know, another popular dietary strategy, but has been shown to be very effective at improving insulin sensitivity. That's the point. Right? So the ketogenic diet piece may not be necessary depending on the person, but the key, the intermittent fasting piece, um, which is not caloric restriction, that's also a mistake people make. People just figure, well, if they just reduce the number of meals, whatever, uh, then they're, they're intermittent fasting. But a lot of that turns into caloric restriction. So there's a very fine line between fasting properly and caloric restriction. Uh, and the KCCP does, you know, does allude to some of those things. So uh, feel free to download that. Uh, it's a very good place to start. Uh, and it does have a section in there about calories and a, and a section in there about exercise and kind of what should be done and maybe what shouldn't be done or at least less of those things. Supplementation, that's a whole nother topic. Um, but some of the things you might have done some research on, Vitex, uh, certainly the things that improve insulin, uh, alpha lipoic acid, chromium, uh, sal palmetto, a way to bring down those androgens. Uh, you know, another popular one is called myo-inositol. Um, There's research on all of those, you know, for specifically for PCOS. So uh, we're, we're going to touch on more of those in the future. And definitely, yeah, if you want to download that keto carb cycling program, it's free. It's on our website and it's free. Yeah. Uh, so I think that uh, answers her couple questions about Prometrium specifically. We go into a little bit more detail. Of course, we made some assumptions about Nikki that we didn't really know for sure, but it just helps us kind of talk about the situation. And for anyone else out there that has PCOS, you know, PCOS, as we said, is a spectrum. It's, you know, level of severity. It's not whether you have it or you don't. And sometimes uh, when you when a woman has full-blown PCOS, it's easy to diagnose. But when it's not exactly textbook, um, these are the type of women that get missed a lot. Uh, you know, and that's what we're, that's what we're trying to say is that just because your doctor says you don't have, it doesn't mean you do. If he does, if they do say you have it, then you more than likely probably do based on some of that criteria, because that means that there are definitely some abnormalities there. So I, I think we covered enough for now. Dr. Davidson, do you have anything else to add? Oh, no, no, this was great. Yeah. Yeah. So till next time, I'm Dr. Mackey. And I'm Dr. Davidson. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Progress Your Health podcast. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, please give us a positive review on iTunes. This allows us to spread our message, grow our audience, and help more people around the world. For more information, visit our website at progressyourhealth.com.